Good morning, Sailorville. What a great hymn of praise to start off the preaching of the word as I invite you to find Genesis chapter 25 as we continue in our series, Faith of Our Fathers, as we say goodbye to one of our, the patriarchal fathers uh, today in the death of Abraham. Someone has, someone has said that uh, we should strive to live a life that really matters and leave a legacy that never dies. That would certainly be true of Abraham. He lived a life that really mattered. And he left a legacy that will never die. Abraham, faith of our fathers, Genesis chapter 25. Actually, I got I to gotta be honest with you. I, I want you to look at chapter 24, the first line, because I always, I just get a chuckle out of this. This is where we were before in chapter 24, where it says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Now that, I don't know what comes to your mind, but I think of a guy who's got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, don't you? I mean, he's, he's ready to go. And his wife, Sarah, dies in that chapter. But you go to chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ixbak, and Shula. The guy remarried and had six more kids. Talk about virility. Enough of that. Let's, what, what really does matter is what this passage is talking about. Not just the death of this great patriarch and uh, the descendants that would come after him, but the legacy that he would leave, a faith legacy that you and I can come into the train of, so to speak. I want you to look at uh, down to verse 5 in chapter 25, where we're told, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of Abraham, that is his life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age. That's what we all want, right? An old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah, his wife, rather. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And hence we have the passage of scripture of the, with the passing of the torch and the passing of Abraham and his amazing life comes to an end at 175 years of age. It's true that God buries his workers, but the work goes on. Some of his workers, some of God's workers that is, deserve special recognition in their death, though they themselves wouldn't want that or ask for that. Abraham left this world with a legacy of faith that literally would transcend every epoch, every era of history to the present and on into infinity. 
I love how the Apostle Paul put it 2,000 years later. The Apostle Paul is writing in Romans chapter 4, Romans, this magnum opus of Paul's that defining the gospel of God. And he says, how about, how about our father Abraham? How did he come to know God? How did he get forgiveness? How did he have salvation? Was it by the law or by faith? And he says, then he asks the question, what does the scripture say? Which is, by the way, what we should always ask. What does the scripture say? And then in Romans 4, verse 3, he quotes Genesis 15, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So 2,000 years later, we have the Apostle Paul recording the fact of faith. Later in that very same chapter, he defines what faith is through the life of Abraham again by saying, Abraham believed the promise of God, believing that what God had said, he was able to perform, quote unquote. Which, by the way, is a a flat out definition of what faith is. Faith is believing that what God has promised, he's able to perform. That's what faith is. Same chapter. Later on, James tells us that it was the faith of Abraham that God demonstrates the, that is the unpacking of faith, what faith, the proof of faith, the justification of faith. That is when Abraham was wielding that knife over his son with the full intention of plunging it into him and offering him as a sacrifice, God stopped him. You know the story. We've been there and done it already. But James tells us that this is the justification or the proof of faith when our faith takes action. So let me tell you something. When they're still writing about you 2,000 years after you're dead, you've left a legacy. For sure, for sure. And it begs the question this morning. How's your legacy doing? What's it look like? You dropped off planet Earth today. What legacy would you leave behind? Is it a legacy Are you living a life that really matters, leaving a legacy that will never die? Abraham did. You can too. I mean, you're all breathing, as far as I can tell, which means you you still have a chance if you haven't started even now. You have a chance to begin to live a life that really matters and leave a legacy that never, ever ends like Abraham. Abraham's death reminds us that even the great ones die, right? They just do. We kind of get used to it. And this is a story of death. I'll be candid with you. I was going to skip over this. I was going to make, make a beeline in this chapter for, for the birth and the life of Esau and Jacob. That's for later. But the events of this last week said, it's like the Spirit of God said, no, camp on the death of Abraham and what took place there. So here we go this morning. We're talking death here. Nothing like a morbid subject on Sunday morning, huh? And death, this passage reminds us, comes to us all. Can you you agree with that? Death comes to all of us. Verse 8, Abraham died. 175, but he still died. And then he's described as having, look at that, verse 8, as having died in a good old age, an old man full of years. The Hebrew here conveys the idea of being satisfied, uh, to be at peace. Are you at peace? Are you at peace with your life? Are you at peace with your death? Some of you are not at peace right now as we speak. 
Some of you are petrified about dying, and you should be, because you don't have peace with God, as Abraham did. Would, would Abraham, this description, def- describe you as satisfied in God, at peace with God, experiencing the peace of God? All of that was true of Abraham. Let me tell you, you're going to die. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, no denials here. Psalm 139 says that God has a book right now in heaven with everything about your life. Everything is there, even the stuff that hasn't been lived out. Don't ask me to explain it. I know it's there. I believe it's true because God has said it. There's nothing that you can do to extend your life one millisecond beyond the day God says you are going to go, you're going to check out. Job also said, Job said, man's days are determined and God has decreed even the number of his months and set boundaries on them which he cannot exceed. Have you ever read that? Because that's what the Bible says. Rome had a tradition that at the, at the triumph, that is, they'd have a triumph. When they'd have a great uh, victory, the general would have a great victory, they'd have a triumph, and they'd have all these, the crowds would be uh, packing into the Roman Colosseum, and in would come the general on a chariot, behind him would be the, the captives from war, the, all of, the, all of the, the stuff that they accumulated, the sacrifices, would be, the smell of meat would be in the air, and there would just be this just great adoration for the general for his victory. And yet on that chariot, right behind the general, was a slave whose one, whose absolute one order was to continuously whisper into the ear of the Roman general, you're just a man. You're just a man. You're mortal. You're going to die like everybody else. There's actually a story in history not unlike that, a little different, but uh, of a kingdom that whenever the first order of business for the king, whenever he would be installed as king, was to choose his gravestone. Imagine that, for the very same reason to remind him of his mortality. When I was on vacation here a month or so ago, I, I took a book with me and read it. I couldn't put it down so fascinating. It was called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Anybody know who Christopher Hitchens was? Raise your hand if you know who he was. There's not too many of you. Christopher Hitchens was one of the most renowned atheists of our day. He he and Richard Dawkins were were buddies. He was a little more (laughs) vitriolic in his hatred of Christianity. And he he would debate noted theologians. You can watch him on YouTube. Englishman who was very eloquent in his language, but just would just cut people in half in his debates as much as he could. The book by Larry Toughton is called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. And uh, it, it tells about their friendship. Larry Toughton was the moderator in a lot of those debates. The guy sitting between Hitchens, the avowed atheist, and whatever Christian theologian was debating him. And can you believe it, through, because they kept going from one thing to it, they became friends. They became genuine friends. That is, the Christian Larry Towton and the atheist Christopher Hitchens. In fact, Towton tells in the book how he called Christopher Hitchens one day, and when he answered the phone, he could barely talk. His voice was cracking. It was as if he was crying. And Towton said, Christopher? He said, yes. He said, is everything okay? He said, no, it's not. He said, 
Larry, I was just told by my doctor that I have uh, a form of cancer. In fact, it was, it was a esophageal cancer, a kind that kills almost everybody who gets it. And Hitchens said to Towton, he said, quote, I had plans for the next decade of my life. I think I should cancel them. Hitchens clearly, though privately, was intrigued by the gospel, enthralled by the words of Jesus. One thing is for sure, he never had peace. He didn't have that full life. And some of you are just like that right now. There's a guy in this room, I won't point him out, I've had the joy of working with, and the reason we came together to start studies together was because he was petrified of dying, and rightly so, until the good news of the gospel changed his heart. He's not afraid anymore, praise the Lord. He's not afraid anymore, because that's what the gospel does. It does as we, it arrests death, it slays death, because Christ took our death, But death comes to all of us. The question is, do you have peace? And are you satisfied with that reality? Secondly, look, if you would, please, at verse 9. Death brings family together. It brings family together. Death does that. It, it just it brings people together. I mean, funerals are fascinating things to me. I've done a lot of them. And you watch relationships that are dear and distant and difficult, all coming back together. I've seen the strangest stuff at funerals. I have seen siblings who haven't spoken to one another in years because of some offense, because of some problem. They don't even talk. I've seen, and they're just kind of awkward. They kind of go around each other and stuff. And yet they're both crying over the same person that died, like a mom or a dad. It's just so strange. It's just so sad, and it's just so unnecessary. Look at verse 9. Did you see who buried Abraham? Do you see it? Isaac and who? Ishmael. Two sons, two brothers, two brothers from different mothers, same dad. The one, the son of promise, Isaac. The other, the rejected one. Ishmael, come together at the death of their father. And by the way, when the, later on in the chapter, the twins of Isaac are born, Jacob and Esau, and some of you are familiar, for the next 10, I mean for the next 10 straight chapters, we will see all the intrigue, the drama, the conniving, the deception, the, the hatred, the, again, the vitriolic hatred that these two had for each other, Jacob and Esau, and yet... You come to chapter 35, Isaac dies. Jacob and Esau, they bury their dad together. You know, since death brings families together, why would you wait until then to reconcile? Right now, some of you, you have ought against a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad. You have some offense with them and you haven't talked to them, maybe it's weeks or months or maybe even years, I don't know what it is. But why would you wait until they, some, a parent dies or they die? 
before you do everything you can to reconcile with them. Why would you wait? Why would you wait? I understand, some of you have tried. Paul says in Romans 12, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. I get it. You make every effort, they're not willing, I get it, then, that's the, then you just leave it to God. I have, I'm estranged from one of my own sons and it tears my heart out. I weep regularly over it. But it's not for lack of effort. And I'm at peace with God as much as I'm vexed over the whole thing. Don't wait. Determine today to not wait till the funeral, whoever's it may be, to reconcile with that member of your family. Death comes to all of us. It brings families together. And it brings blessing to the next generation. That's the cool thing about this. This is what I've been dying to get to here. It brings blessing to the next generation. You know, uh, John writes in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than when my children walk in what? Truth. And that's true, isn't it? We as parents, we, we grab a hold of that baby. Yeah, I have no greater joy than when my children walk in truth. Of course, the opposite is true. I have no greater sorrow than when my children you know, walk in error. But, and John was really talking about spiritual children here. Why is that true? It should be true, not for your own personal pride, but it should be true because when your children walk in truth, that is the blessing of God being transferred to the next generation, the gospel of God going forth. Because when God buries his worker, workers, he intends the work to go on. That's what he wants it to do. That's what it should do. Verse five, look at verse five. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. You see that? He had, the, the, the text tells us he had lots of kids and grandkids, but all of it, go, why? Because the blessing of God, the transfer of power was to Isaac, not to Ishmael, not to any of his other kids necessarily. The transfer of power, authority, responsibility of spreading the honor and the glory of God to the next generation was Isaac's. The promise that God said to Abraham, remember in chapter 12, Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And through you, I'm gonna bless the nations. I'm gonna bless the world. And Isaac was the next one in the, change of, in, the, in the chain of order to bring that blessing. And that's God's intent at death. He wants to bring blessing to the next generation. It's not all about you. Read Psalm 78. It's about building a generational love for Jesus Christ. You can't save anybody, but you can lay down the legacy that will last, amen? That's what you can do. And that's what Abraham did. And the Bible tells us again, God blessed Isaac, his son. I want to point that out specifically to you because it doesn't say that he blessed Ishmael. Listen, Ishmael was right there, right there, next to the blessing, but not blessed. Think about that. Right there, next to the blessing, but unblessed. I, I want to talk to all of you 
that are young in this church. I have half a mind to ask you to stand up if you're under the age of 18. Stand up if you're under the age of 18. Stand up, all of you, under the age of 18. And look at me. I don't know if every one of you are like this, but many of you are. You have been raised in a house that claims Jesus Christ, that has preached the gospel to you, has told you that Christ has died for you, that he rose again for you. You need to believe on him and make him the Lord of your life. You're right next to the blessing. But some of you aren't blessed. You're listening, but your hearts aren't in it. I want to tell you about my friend, Vinci. He's an Italian guy. Who else would you call Vinci, right? Italian friend of mine. I had Bible studies with him, preached the gospel to him for months on end, but he wasn't getting saved. He was next to the blessing, but he wasn't blessed. I would go home and I'd say to my wife, am I not making this thing clear? She oh, you're making it clear. Just keep preaching it. One day, Vinci comes to me after church and he said, Pastor, I gave my heart to Jesus today. I trusted him as my Savior. I said, well, praise the Lord, Vince. I I didn't even preach that day. It kind of made me feel bad. (laughs) I said, what's this all about? I've been preaching the gospel to you for months. He goes, oh, I know, I know, I know you have. He said, I'll never forget how he put it. He goes, but every time you'd preach, my head would go like this, but my heart would go like this. And that... That man who had become a Christian just 20 minutes earlier visually explained what's going on in some of your lives right now. You're hearing the gospel at home. You're hearing it in youth group. You're hearing it at church. You're hearing it every Sunday. You're hearing it from mom and dad. And you say, well, my home environment, there's hypocrisy. Oh, everybody's got hypocrisy. You know it's true. Your head goes, yeah, this is true. But your heart keeps saying no. And I'm giving you a charge before God, his angels, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for you. Repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And go from being next to the blessing to being blessed. You can sit down. Because God intends for these blessings to to go into you and through you to the next generation. He buries his workers, but the work goes on. Some of those workers desire and deserve special recognition, but as I said, even though they don't deserve it, or that is, they don't desire it, Billy Graham was one of those men. I rejoiced the other day to see everybody hit the pause button for a few moments. Conservatives were not yelling against the liberals. The liberals weren't yelling against the conservatives. The media wasn't attacking the president, and the president wasn't doing a tweet storm against the media. For a little while, everybody just stopped and hit their own pause button and gave thanks to whoever, many to God for this icon of the faith, more than an icon, more than a national hero, a God-filled voice in the wilderness. 
who for many years, an entire generation, preached the gospel to over 200 million people. Think about this legacy. Think about this. Millions of people owe him a debt of gratitude for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was on my way on that Thursday morning to study, and all the way I'm thinking, I have no margin, I have no margin, I have no margin. I got a, I got a retreat coming up, I got a message to bring people, I got to stay on task, stay on task, stay on task. And the radio came on and announced that Billy Graham had died. So what did I do when I got to the coffee shop? I watched all the news outlets for the next hour. And I cried. I literally wept. Not because he died. I mean, yes, a voice was silenced of the gospel. 99. People die when they're 99. I cried because of the powerful impact that that man made in this generation. My own father once told me that he responded to Billy Graham's preaching. I wept about that. And then I wept in repentance again. Because to my shame, as a younger preacher, arrogant, I got caught up in all of the things that I disagreed with Billy Graham on, and I literally preached against him. Until 30 years ago, I was watching a news magazine on TV that had said, I saw a commercial that said they were going to interview Billy Graham. I thought, this will be interesting. So I sat there and watched the interview. This secular news magazine interviewing Billy Graham, probably 70 years old at the time. And I saw what drew people to him. He was humble. He was sweet. He was gospel-filled. The love of Christ literally bled through this man. And I sat there, and I had tears in my eyes 30 years ago when I saw this. And I repented. I said, God, forgive me forever speaking an evil word about that man. And as you are my witness, I'll never do it again. And by the grace of God, I never have again. He was a man who left a testimony of a lasting legacy, lived a life that really mattered, left a legacy that never dies and as I said, millions of people owe a debt of gratitude, probably some of you. But this is the intention of God at death to bring blessing to the next generation. Is it not? Now, one more thing I want to share with you about death this morning. It brings us to God. If we know God. Oh, forget it. It just brings us to God because everybody stands before him someday. Right? But there's a beautiful expression in verse 8. I, I, look at it, if you will. It says, he was gathered to his people. I just love that. He, was, he died and was gathered to his people. Not laid in a grave, which of course he was. But, he, he, but gathered to his people. It's a euphemism. A euphemism is, is saying 
a hard thing in a nice way, or saying in a nice way something that's hard. He doesn't say, kick the bucket. But it says he got, this is an Old Testament expression used repeatedly, gathered to their people. The New Testament has a euphemism. It's, it, you, for Christians, it says they, they sleep. You read that? When you, when you die in Christ, you, you sleep, it says. The idea is it's a metaphor for, for the hope that we have of coming to, coming to life again. Because when you go to bed at night and you go to sleep, you expect to what? Wake up again. And every Christian who dies in Jesus Christ dies in the hope that they'll wake up again. And that is joy, sheer, unmitigated joy, or should be. When the scripture says, he was gathered to his people, the, 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 it's a Hebrewism that carries the idea of relational, joyful, life-giving, family life beyond the grave. That's the idea here. And it's a life that is now. You don't have to wait to get raised from the dead to enjoy life above. It was actually D.L. Moody who made famous the statement, someday you'll hear that D.L. Moody has died, but don't you believe it. I'll be more alive then than I ever have been. And Billy Graham picked up on that, said the same thing. Now, Abraham is dead. The passage tells us he died again and again. But 2,000 years later, our Lord Jesus reminds us, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the kingdom of heaven. How's that for a gathering? You coming? So Abraham died and was, again, gathered to his people. Now, look at it again. Gathered to his people. Why do I point that out? Because full disclosure, verse 17 says, Ishmael died and he was gathered to his people too. So I guess the real question is, who's your people? Who's your people? That's the question, is it not? Because you're going to be gathered with the saints or with the sinners who die unforgiven. Who's your people? I told you about the book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens and his friend, Larry Towton. Larry Towton is a fervent believer who moderated those debates, as I said. They became true friends. They took a, they took a 14 hour and a seven or nine hour road trip together. In fact, after Hitchens knew he had cancer and was dying, he still kept the appointment for these long trips with Larry Towton. And he, you know what they did? They studied the Gospel of John together and they came to chapter 11. Now here's, here's Towton driving and here's Hitchens sitting in the passenger seat. They come to John 11, and I thought to myself, this is a tale of two English people. One, we, I see it right over here, Claire Olson. Go ahead and stand up, Claire. Go ahead and stand up. Let's give a round of applause for Claire. We love Claire. She's our English rose. She's from England. You can sit down, dear. 
Claire fought the gospel for, it seemed like forever, didn't you, honey? Until God placed John 11 in front of her. He's actually Chuck, but you know, might as well have been God. Not the Chucks, I mean, don't confuse the two, please. Please don't confuse the two. But she by herself is looking at John 11 and hearing God's word from the Son of God himself. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Actually, that's what Jesus asked. Greatest evangelistic message Jesus ever preached right there, John 11, 25, and 26. He asked the question, do you believe this? And Claire Olson sat there and said, yes, I believe it. And she was saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christopher Hitchens was reading the same passage to Larry Talton. And he came upon it, and he said to Larry, he said, I am the resurrection. Yeah, I'm familiar with this passage, he said. But I didn't know it was connected to Lazarus and Talton Dragon. Yep, it is. And uh, Hitchens always very sarcastic. Even as he was dying, he was. He, he read the last line in verse 26, and he said to Larry, he said, by the way, he loved the King James Version. Hated God, loved the King James Version. Really weird. But he said to Towton, he said, believest thou this, Larry Towton? Towton said, Christopher, you know I do. The real question is, believest thou this, Christopher Hitchens? Listen to how Hitchens responded. He said, I'll admit that it's not without appeal to a dying man. Towton would later write, at the end of his life, Christopher's searches had brought him willingly, if secretly, to the altar. Because if anybody knows, Rich, or, uh, that is Christopher Hitchens, he, he kept a public persona to the very end as a hater of Christianity, a hater of the Bible. But privately, God was working him over. And we don't know what happened when he died. As far as we know, he died as an unbeliever. God knows. And he also knows what's going on in your life right now, the condition of your heart. Let me give you that last line from Talton's book. He said, at the end of his life, Christopher's searches had brought him willingly, if secretly, to the altar. The altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. You got to come to Jesus. You got to come to the cross. You got to go from the place of being around the blessing and not being blessed to entering into the blessing and placing your heart faith in Jesus Christ. And I beg you, my heart was in tears for you young people this morning thinking about this and talking to God and begging God to save you from your sins. To go from being the person that's around the blessing to being the person that possesses the blessing. But some of you are old, some of you are gray-headed, and some of you are dark-hearted. And you too need to repent of your sin and believe on the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Come to the altar and be saved. God, thank you. 
Thank you for the story of the great patriarch of our faith, Abraham. And for giving us a man who lived a life that really did matter and left a legacy that will never die. God, I pray that there would be people in this room right now, if that's you, young person, those of you that stood up, and you would say, I have fought this long enough. My head agrees, but my heart has said no. I don't just want to be around the blessing of God. I want to be blessed. And would you just humble your heart before God and say with Claire Olson a few years ago, yes, I believe it. I believe it. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I want him as my Savior. Please forgive me. I I turn to you from my sin and I receive you, Lord Jesus. Would that be your heart? And then just pray that from your heart and God will save you. Anyone in this room, anyone in this room that would desire from your heart to go from being around a blessing to be blessed, the invitation is yours to come to the altar. Let's stand.